Aloha, and thank you for joining us on our exciting adventure of walking through the New Testament as a participant in a life group. Open your heart to what God may be saying to you as we endeavor not only to hear His Word, but to obey. Here now is our Bible teacher, Pastor Jim Morocco. In the first chapter, John has been concerned about the proclamation of the word of life, which is founded on the historical manifestation of Christ and the truth that God is light. In chapter 1, we also became aware of the problem of sorting the true believers from the false. The heretics have made three false claims, which John answers. And now here, in verse 3 of chapter 2, John begins to help to delineate between true and false Christians by stating that true Christians know. And he's going to be giving us now tests of what is a true Christian and what is a false Christian. And he begins by saying, true Christians know. He states, hereby we know that we know him. Now, it seems as though those who were false Christians were using the word know a lot, saying we have this kind of knowledge. So John is picking that up and says, we know him. And here's how we know him. We know whether Jesus lives in that person's life or not, or whether that person has a personal relationship with Jesus, if we keep his commandments. If we say we personally know the Lord and then don't obey him, we don't know him. You see, the word keep here in the phrase is if we keep his commandments means being vigilant and watchful to discover and to observe them strictly. What John is saying, a real Christian is one who continually strives to live their life in full obedience to the Lord. Well, that brings us then to the negative aspect of John's statement, and that is if a person says he knows the Lord, that is, he's a Christian, but he doesn't obey the Lord, he's a liar, and the truth doesn't reside in him. What John says here is similar to what he said in chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, in verse 5, John states, But whoever keeps his word, more than simply God's commandment, it describes the sum total of God's self-revelation and his revelation of the duty which is required of man. Now, the interesting thing by the very fact that John puts whoever keepeth his word, it seems as though he's defining what he means when he said whoever keeps his commandment. He just keeps God's commandment. He simply is expanding on that. He says the result of that is that the love of God is perfected. If we're keeping God's word, the love of God is perfected. What that really means, or what is better translated, the love for God is perfected. That is, we grow in our love for God and we obey him. Now, love for John is not expressed in simply sentimental language or some great experience. Love, by John's terms, as seen here, is obedience to the Lord morally. So what is being very clearly stated here is that if we're saying that we're Christians, and this is how John closes this section, he says, if we know we abide in him, here's how we know we're in Christ. We walk as he walked. If one claims to be a Christian, there should be an inward desire to pattern their lives after the Lord. If they really know him, they're keeping his commandments, they're obeying the word, and they're desiring to live their life in the same way Christ lived it. Now we move on, and John begins to look at the second test to be applied to a professing Christian. And that is what some have called the social test, or the test of love. If we walk as Christ walked, we are to walk in love. Now, John opens this section by saying, brethren, in reality it really means beloved. He begins to talk about love by first expressing his love. And the commandment John reminds them is that which they knew from the beginning. Now, what does it mean by something that they knew from the beginning? It's probably, although one have said maybe it's from the Old Testament or from creation. No, I think in reality what he's talking about is that which they learned as they became a Christian. From the very beginning of their Christian life, they knew this commandment. It's really the commandment of love. It's the commandment that Jesus over and over again has 
talked about of loving one another, and we see that that is the commandment. Now, John goes on from there, and he begins to say, it is a new commandment. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Now, what seems to be suggested here is that this is a new commandment because it belongs to the new age which had been ushered in by the shining of the true light. Well, who is the true light? The true light is Jesus. Christ is the true and real light, which physical light that we all experience is simply a reflection. Just as Jesus is the true bread and he's the true vine, he's the true light of the world. Well, because he has come into the world and because he is love... And because we are following after him and he is in us and we are in him, we love. Now, if we love people, we can see how to avoid sinning against them. And that's why John says there is none occasion of stumbling in him. If we're loving our brother, we're not going to be stumbling. And the reason here is because darkness, as John would suggest, he said, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. And then verse 11 says, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whether he goeth because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. See, if we're in darkness, hatred distorts our perspective. It is love which allows us to see straight and to think clearly and makes us balanced in our outlook and judgment and conduct of others. Now, if one walks in Jesus, he's walking in the light, and if he says he hates his brother, then it's a tremendous contradiction of terms because he is really not in the light because genuine faith is seen in relationship to both God and man. So the very clear thing here is the test not only of moral obedience to God, but the second test of loving one another. Now he begins to talk a little bit about his purpose. His purpose in writing is as much to confirm the Christians or to encourage the Christians as it is to reveal the counterfeit. And we begin to see this as we look then at verse 12 and following. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him, that is, from the beginning. And he goes on and begins to talk about this. And you see that he talks about three specific groups, little children, young men, and fathers. What is he talking about? I believe he's talking about stages in spiritual development. Little children are newborn Christians. Young men are Christians who are very involved in the work of the Lord, strong and victorious in spiritual warfare. And fathers are those who possess a depth and stability of, of ripe Christian experience. Well, let's look at together what he says to each group, and that's fascinating in itself. First group to the children, to the new Christians, he seems to talk about two specific things that are very, very important. One is, of course, the fact that their sins are forgiven. In the Greek, it is very clear that they have been forgiven and will remain forgiven. That is, that God's not going to be reminded of the sins that have been committed in the past. He's forgiven them and they'll remain to be forgiven. And secondly, that they have known the Father. In reality, it really means they have come to know God as their Father. These are probably the earliest conscious experiences of a newborn Christian. Secondly, he begins to talk then to the young men who are not simply enjoying fellowship with God, but they're fighting the enemy. They have overcome. They've been delivered from the present sins, and, and they're out doing conquest. And the reason for their successes is the word of God, and they seek to conform their lives to God's ethical demands. And then, of course, the third group is fathers, who are their spiritual adults, and they've progressed into that a deep communion with God, and, and all Christians come to know God, but their knowledge of him ripens over the years. From the beginning is a reference to their understanding of God who has not changed and has continued to reveal himself to them. 
Well, John moves from there and begins to describe the church and the church's relationship to the world. We've got to realize that when he's talking about young men and little children and fathers, he's really talking about the church. He's addressing this letter to the church. And somebody would say, well, why is it that he makes a distinction between I write unto you and I have written unto you? I think the best answer that I have come up with is simply that what John is doing in repeating what he is saying, these three messages, is that he's doing it for emphasis and he is saying that this message is sure and steadfast and it's not something he is changing his mind about. He's writing this because it's his final and full testimony to them and he wants to see them continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord no matter what stage of spiritual life they are in. He is touching all of them. He begins to talk about the world, and it's fascinating how he describes the world. What he means by the world is the life of human society is organized under the power or the person of evil, Satan himself. You see, John sees the world as distinct from the church, as distinct from light is from darkness. We've got to realize there's not this gray in the scriptures. You're in the church or you're in the world. You're either in the light or you're in darkness. Now, the reason why one should not love the world is because you can't love the world and God at the same time. And secondly, that the world is transient, that the world is going to be destroyed. The world will die, if you will. But those who are serving God, they are eternal. The will of God abides forever, and those who are doing the will of God will abide forever. Now, when he says, love not the world, he's not talking about the people of the world, because he says, God, God so loved the world. That is, loving the people of the world. What he's talking about by the world is the evil system. The scriptures would record the prince of this world is cast out and judged. He's talking about this evil system, and Satan is the prince of the world. And Satan uses certain things to captivate people. The lust of the flesh, or the desires of our fallen nature and, and self, or the eyes, which is captivated by an outward show without really checking into what is real and what are the values that are real. It's just simply taking things as they perceive to our own eyes and their delight to our eyes. It's the same kind of temptation that Eve had, or the same kind of temptation that David had, through lustful desires to Bathsheba. And then thirdly, pride of life. It's the arrogance, or it's what you would call the vainglory, relating to what is happening externally. A desire to be above other people, to outshine others in a pretentious way. Well, John is making it very clear that we are in the world, but we're distinct from the world. We need to hear again, as John would try to remind us by these passages, of the words of Jesus, the real essence behind what John is saying, marvel not that the world hates you. I'll be back in a moment with the application. Now, there are many things we can apply in this particular passage. I want us to, first off, realize the test and ask ourselves the question, are we truly Christians in light of the tests that John has given us? Where are we in terms of morality? Are we living the life? And are we really loving one another? Now, let's look at those two things. One thing in terms of moral obedience. Isn't it fascinating that John would say something like this, that whoever keeps God's word, the love of God is perfected. Here's a correlation between keeping God's word and love for God. 
Somebody says, well, I love God. No, you don't love God if you're not keeping his word. You may say you love God. You may have some good feelings about loving God, but you don't love him unless you're willing to obey him and are willing to do his word. And that's very critical. And there's a lot of people, because of the great, tremendous growth in the kingdom of God and the way that there are television programs and radio programs and so many Christian books that people can read Christian books and can do all these things and think that they love God because they're doing religious things but not really love Him because they're not obeying Him. Now secondly, that really brings out even in our own relationships. I've heard people say, well, I love them. I love my wife but then they go out and commit fornication. Don't tell me you love your wife if you're going out and committing adultery because you don't love her. Oh, you have some emotional connection there but you don't love her. You love is seen in the fact of loyalty, just as it's seen here. Real loyalty. Loyalty to God and obedience to His Word. That's real love. Well, we see something else here about, about loving other people. We've got to be very careful lest hatred takes over us and we begin to be confused thinking that we love God because we're doing religious things and yet really hate people. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that if we're really walking in love, we're going to be less likely to stumble. The word there is scandalon, occasion for stumbling. It means a trap or a snare. You see, when we're not loving people and we're hating people, we're opening ourselves to be ensnared by the evil one. Somebody says, well, I can't forgive that person. Well, in forgiving that person, what you're going to find out is you're going to be free. You're going to be free then to love them and not be ensnared. Because what happens when you're hating someone, you are in darkness, and that darkness blinds your eyes. It blinds your eyes about who you are, it blinds your eyes about who the other person is, and it blinds your eyes about who God is and what God can do for you. We don't need to be in darkness. We need to be in light. So you better start forgiving. Start forgiving tonight. Well, thirdly, we begin to see some other things here that I want us to really begin to be aware of. All of us are in different levels of our spiritual life, but all of us need to hear what John is saying. Those of you that are new Christians, I want you to keep remembering the fact that your sins are forgiven and that you know the Father. You've come into relationship with Him. Those of you that have been in the Lord a while, you're going to have to really realize you're going to have to fight the wicked one, overcome him. And that's going to be through the Word of God, knowing the Word of God and having it abide in you. And you've, you that have been in the Lord a lot, don't be so proud and so, so sitting around doing nothing. But in your knowing Him from the beginning, you know that He's not changed and you need to continue to live for Him and grow in Him and share a revelation of Him with others. Now finally we come to the point of temptation. Now isn't it interesting how the temptation works out? How the world, it's so easy to be ensnared by the world. Loving the world. I've had a lot of people come to me and say, Oh, you know, how much can I do if I'm a Christian? Wait a minute, that's not even the point. If you're thinking that way, you've already been wrapped up into the world. It's the question, you don't love the world or the things in the world. If you do, then your love for God is growing cold. And you've got to be careful lest that begins to happen. Your lust of the flesh, your own sinful nature popping up and you let it keep popping up and not dealing with it. And the lust of the eyes, boy, we're bombarded by desires that are put in front of us on televisions and all the other things. Lust of the eyes. And the pride of life, thinking we're so tremendous. We need to deal with those things. Not allow them to get a hold of our life. They're all passing away. But a good thing is happening. If you're going to do the will of God, you're going to live forever. Now, boy, that reminds me of a tremendous verse of Scripture. And I've said it over and over again. Not every man that crieth, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Your life should be wrapped around doing nothing but God's will. Nothing but God's will. Listen to that now doing nothing but God's will. And if that becomes your goal in life, 
then it's going to be a little bit harder for you to be ensnared by the world. Let's have a time of prayer together. Father, thank you so much for all that you've shared with us today. I thank you for loving us and caring for us. I thank you for revealing yourself to us. And my prayer is, Father, that these who've heard your word tonight will be changed by it and will be blessed. And I thank you now for what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.